We began the Lenten journey on Ash Wednesday with a, a focus on Jesus's steadying himself in the face of his temptations by recalling eternal truths that he recalled in Scripture. And to each of the temptations, he said, it is written. And as we uh, considered this, we encouraged ourselves to become better acquainted with Scripture during Lent. May the words of my mouth be acceptable in thy sight. For those of you who have gathered a few years over the years, you will remember the Good Friday tradition of afternoon community-wide ecumenical services with meditations on the last seven words of Christ. I've been in ministry 45 years, and in my first year of ministry, that was a tradition, and we did that. And in those early years, we did that each Good Friday, but then uh, somehow society's tipping of its hat to church traditions became a little less um, welcoming, I guess, and we no longer accommodated that kind of religious observance during a workday. These last words, these seven last words of Christ are, are really sentences, the final ones remembered as spoken by Jesus as he was dying on the cross. They're not thought of as, as spontaneous or incidental comments, and maybe you do see it that way. I don't see it that way, but rather I see it as further revelations of who Jesus was and, and what he taught. I see them as intentional and thoughtful, sacred in that they were spoken in his extremis. So we will meditate, meditate upon these words through Lent as we keep our tradition of trying to follow Jesus' teachings this year. The Romans used crucifixion as a humiliating, painful, and public form of capital punishment. It was made to degrade and shame the victim and serve as a deterrent to other potential wrongdoers as they witnessed the person crucified and suffering along the main thoroughfare in and out of the city. We're told that the person died by asphyxiation. Once they could no longer tolerate the pain of, of lifting themselves up on what? On the nails that were in their ankles or feet and hands, lifting themselves up so that they could get air into their lungs and then resting back down on the nails. They were hung by the nails. Like that. Now I share this not to be morbid, 
but so that we are reminded of the reality that Jesus was going through as he was crucified. You might feel like you know a lot about Jesus' sense of scourging by that Mel Gibson film that showed him being tortured and whipped and all of that. But even in that film, they didn't spend a whole lot of time of Jesus hanging on the cross and suffering crucifixion. Yet, and it was there upon that cross while people were cursing and degrading him, walking by him, yelling up at him, mocking him with what I imagine must have been pain exploding through his body as the hours went on. And with the life energy kind of draining out of him that he struggles to get his breath and even in that struggling, in that gasping of air, he speaks. And he's remembered as speaking seven times. Sacred words, I hope you would think. We spend a lot of time in books and in novels coming to somebody's death and what were the last words that the person said? Did you hear the last words? And, and we tell the last words. Wesley said, oh, it's blessed. I finally see something like that. And somebody else would say, oh, no. We want to know the last words. Well, here we have the last seven words of the one we call Lord and Savior. I shudder, really. I shudder at the audacity to say that we're going to study these words. Really, we should simply bow in silence, in reverence, for about a half hour and just meditate upon the words. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Behold. Help us, Jesus. Now, a crucified Messiah is no Messiah at all, really is no Messiah at all. That was the common thinking in those days. The idea of a crucified Messiah was just, well, an absurdity. Who would think such a thing? This is the heir of David, the one that is creating the new kingdom for God, and now he is crucified. It's a crazy notion to have a crucified Messiah. Yet somehow, somehow, Jesus as Messiah, crucified, and then with reports of resurrection and all of that, that craziness caught on. And somehow it made sense. And it spread and it persisted and it prevailed. And here we are 20 centuries later at the foot of the cross listening to the seven last words of the crucified Messiah. The gospel writers collected the memories about what Jesus did and what he said, how he lived 
and how he died, when he rose from the dead and, and when he appeared and that he ascended into heaven and he now reigns. They, they gathered all these together, memories and notions about it all to help them believe and then to share the good news that was contained in all of that to empower people and themselves to live into God's kingdom. This process is what we inherit. We hear their witness and we shape our own from their stories and our lives. We come to seven words by drawing together the recollections of the four Gospels. Three of the words are presented only in Luke and three only in John. And then one is both in Matthew and in Mark. Today's word, which Katie read for us, comes from Luke. And when we take them all together, perhaps after you hear all seven, as you take those all together, today's might be the most remarkable of all the words. Because at a time when most people would be cursing their tormentors, Jesus is doing something else. He seems to be possessing a deeper understanding of his tormentors and, and perhaps even of humanity and seeking their betterment through forgiving them. Wow. You can't accuse Jesus of saying one thing and doing another. He taught people to love their enemies, to forgive those who persecuted them. And by God, it seems he meant it because he did it. It's remarkable. As Messiah, we might say, he saw the, the bigger picture, the, the spiritual picture of needed divine human reconciliation. He recognized our spiritual debt to God and sought to right the scales of justice between God and humanity through some act of mercy. As the Lamb of God, he absorbed the hurt and the cost of human sin, the full and disgusting and brutal brunt of human sin, his innocent blood flowing sacrificially for atonement. And some of us embrace this a theology of atonement where Jesus paid the price for us and righted our relationship with God and, and others feel more comfortable at looking at Jesus as a paradigm of, of redemptive sacrificial love, a model we follow and embrace. But either way, either way, 
we come to the cross and we hear, Father, forgive them. Wow. People need forgiveness. And people need to learn to let go of grudges and forgive. And Jesus gives us the ultimate model of that. And you recall that in the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to help us forgive. And we do that in our awareness that God has forgiven us, right? Forgive us our trespasses, we pray, as we forgive those who trespass against us. As we reflect on how God's forgiving grace has changed our lives for the better, we pray, we pray we might be helpful to others by forgiving them. By extending forgiving grace to them. Jesus says, not because they have done penance in front of us, not because they've been imploring us for a decade to give them a break, just because God has forgiven you. You sense that you're called by God to forgive others. Our experience of forgiveness helps us to offer it towards others. There's a great scene in Les Mis of the, of the priests uh, forgiving the main character who has indeed stolen from the church, right? But as the authorities bring him to account to the priest, the priest says, no, I gave, I gave those to him, right? The priest does an act of forgiveness to this wretched being at the time. And that indeed does change that person's life. Unmerited, forgiving grace. Susan Robb writes that people should not be defined by the worst they have done. Hmm. And then she says, when we get this, we get the gospel. Boom. Jesus put a spotlight on this insight. As he extended forgiveness to those around him, in turn, he extends forgiveness to the rest of us who much, 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 much later come to the foot of the cross and find our souls also deeply stained with sin, feeling shame, feeling guilt. As we seek to be 
forgiven, so too do we forgive. In the forgiving of others, even if they do not reconcile with us, in the forgiving of others, we release the baggage of resentment. And we start to free our souls from an unnecessary burden of evening the score. And ironically, through this mercy, we take back an agency for ourselves, not letting the sin of other people define us, not letting the sin of other people deaden and possess us, not letting their sin determine who we are and how we live. We take that back by giving them the forgiveness and releasing that burden from our soul. And with that release, we find we are able to blossom more freely into who God would have us be. And yes, yes, I know that is hard. I know it's hard. But yes, yes, I know it is crucial to your mental health and your spiritual well-being to learn how to do that. Now, all of this may not make much sense, at least that is, unless you think, unless you think God is in the reclamation business, that God is after reclaiming, renewing, and improving our souls and our life. If you think that's what God's about, then this makes some sense. Let it make sense to you and let it carry you forward. God is seeking to reclaim and build anew regardless of the damage. And in the journey to the cross, we will see markers for the way to eternal life. And one of those markers is forgiveness. I invite you today to listen to Jesus. Forgiveness. Amen.